Hey guys, welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission to help you find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new collection of sermons that will go through the book of Revelation. And it's our hope that uh, you will be inspired and encouraged by the truth of God's word today. So here's Pastor Paul, and let's get right into the message. But we're in Revelation chapter number two. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about the church in Pergamos. And if you were to leave Pergamos and just to uh, head out on your way, you can see here on the map, if you're just going to go southeast from Pergamum, it's also called Pergamum and Pergamos. And if you were to take that southeast journey, it's about a 60 kilometer journey down. uh, You kind of go through some rolling hills and then you head down into a plain uh, that is called the Plain of Lycus. And it's there in that plain, that flatland, that you would come to the city that we're covering today, which is called the city of Thyatira. This is where a church uh, there in ancient Asia Minor was located. Now, if Pergamos was uh, known for its uh, worship of of pagan idols and of uh, pagan gods, um, and then of course Ephesus, if if you remember, was also uh, known for the political side of things. When you came to Thyatira, it was known for a completely different thing, and that was it was known as a place of manufacturing. It was a, a center for manufacturing. Now today, there's really only ruins of that city that are left. But it was known as a place where people from all different kind of uh, crafts would come together. They were known for their trade guilds. And so if you were a person uh, that specialized in an occupation like cloth making or uh, dyeing of cloth, that was one popular thing, or leather working at all, or uh, doing anything with metal, anything really that you made with your hands, this was really the place that you wanted to be. Think of it like a Granville Island, uh, but an entire city with that, where you have all these different craftsmen, people that do these unique things. And Thyatira was the place to be. If you remember back to Acts chapter 16 in our series to the book of Acts, uh, there was a woman that was saved in Philippi, the first convert, a woman by the name of Lydia, and she came from Thyatira. Remember, it told us that she was a seller of purple, and so that was her craft. And and, uh, like all ancient cities, of course, uh, they did have worship of Caesar. We know that about all of these. Uh, The worship of Caesar was a big deal. But even though Thyatira was not known as a center for pagan worship, what Thyatira was known for is that there was a temple there to the Greek god Apollo, the god Apollo. And uh, Apollo was the son of Zeus. If you remember back to your uh, history lessons as a, as a teenager, he was the, uh, the son of Zeus. He was uh, really called in those days the son of God. And there in uh, Thyatira, they had a temple that was really the main temple there uh, to the son of Zeus, their Apollo. But besides that, all worship, pagan worship, uh, sacrifices, all of those things were typically then done within your local craftsman uh, guild, the working guild, the association of craftsmen. So if you were, let's say, a leather worker, you would be a part of the leather workers guild and you would meet with them regularly almost every single week or at least every month. Uh, It was kind of like a union, if you want to call it that, but they would look out for each other and they were part of this guild. But a big part of it then was the worship of their patron God. They all had their own gods that they held on to and they felt were, uh, you know, helping them in their their occupation or whatever it was. And so they would get together and these guilds would meet a lot of needs. Obviously, it would meet the business needs and you'd be able to network and connect with one another. But one of the things that also met or was a big part of the lifestyle there was that it was a big part of your social life. And so your family and you would go to these guilds and go to these meetings. Each guild had their own sort of meeting space. And while you were there, there was always the worship of false idols. They would sacrifice food to idols. They would sacrifice it 
And then, of course, uh, eat it as a group. They would also, though, uh, mostly what we understand from history, these would turn into sort of like a, a complete drunken uh, exhibition, really. And then what would take place is that many depraved actions, and as we know, uh, a lot of immorality would take place in these situations as well. So it's this city, Thyatira, this place that was very much divided uh, by your occupation and the things that you did, this place that everyone proudly worshipped uh, the son of Zeus, that we see Jesus as he opens up this section to the church in Thyatira, we see Jesus describing himself in a way and, and in a, I guess in a unique way that he's not described in any other way in the book of Revelation. I want you to see that as we get into the passage here in uh, Revelation chapter two and verse number 18. Look at verse number 18 together. It says, and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now remember, this is written to the pastor, the leader, the messenger, that's translated angel, the messenger of the church, okay? There in Thyatira. So this is what, uh, what is said. These things saith the son of God. The Son of God. Now, that's the unique phrase here that we don't see Jesus using in the book of Revelation at all, we, but we see it here. He says, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So what's happening here? So right away, we see Jesus set himself up against Apollo. Did you notice that? Remember, Zeus uh, was the God that everyone thought was, you know, the greatest God. And so Apollo was his son. And they called that temple there the son of God. And so Jesus right away says, I am the son of God. <laughs> right away. He puts himself up there against him. And of course, for us, he's reminding us of the fact that we owe our eternity to only one, and that is Jesus Christ. He truly is the son of God. And uh, we know as well that uh, truly there is no God within this world that can match up against him. He is above else. He is our all in all and nothing else should share his worship. And so Jesus says, I am the son of God. I am the one. I'm God himself. You should only be paying attention to me. So right away, he kind of puts that out there. And then we see him describe his eyes and his feet, you know, his eyes as a flame of fire and his feet as polished brass. Now that goes back to Revelation chapter number one, uh, where he talks about that. And John is describing him in the vision as he sees Jesus of course, that is indicating and reminding us of the fact that Jesus, his gaze is piercing. He, he looks right through our hearts. He knows what is really going on inside of us. And I, I don't want you to miss that because it's going to really connect in here in a moment as well. His feet being like polished brass, that's a signi uh, that signifies his authority. The fact that he is the one who is able to give judgment. We are under him. Now, Jesus described himself in this way as the son of God and his vision and, and, and his authority. And he does it and it gives us a hint then as to what he's going to talk about with this church here in Thyatira. Because this church was a church that had some good history. But to be honest with you, and, and this is the soberness of the message today, it was a church that was on the edge of destruction. Though they had a good past and a, maybe a good beginning and maybe even a good testimony, the truth of the matter is, is that they were on the very edge of destruction. Now, this letter, if nothing else, is a letter of warning to the church. And so church family at City Baptist, this is a warning to us. It is a warning to us about our watchfulness as individuals and regarding the purity of our church. It is also, of course, a warning to us as individuals that we do not allow uh, the influence of our world around us to influence us in such a way that we literally are going against and resisting God himself. Because what we're going to see as we get into the passage here is that the outside influences of this city, Thyatira, found an inroad and found a way into the local church. And as a result of that, God was going to bring judgment to this church family. 
But just like we've seen in the previous ones, Jesus begins with a bit of a pattern. And so as we start in verse number 19, we're going to see that there is some good and we see that the good is recognized. And so if you're taking notes, you can put that down for point number one today. We see the good that is recognized by the Lord. Look at verse number 19. So he says, I know thy works. And again, that word, I know that's he sees everything. I know thy works and charity is or love and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Now, this is really interesting here. Despite the fact that God had some real problems with this church, despite the fact that uh, he really had some difficult things that he's going to address here in a minute, God takes the moment to recognize and see the good and talk about the good that the church has done. Here's the thing. It is always within the character of God to see the good, to see the potential for good within his creation. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God can see some good in me, not because of who I am. I am a rebellious, fallen individual, but because of Christ in me. And so this church, God says, this is my church. This is what I I gave myself for. It started out well. And I want you to notice there all of the things that they were doing. It says their works and charity and service and faith and patience. I mean, there was a lot that was going on in this church family. They were accomplishing a lot of good things uh, for the Lord. I believe that this was an active church. I think it was dynamic. I think it was an alive church. I think by today's standards, we would say this is a church that's taking care of the physical needs of their community and, and taking care of, of issues within their uh, within their region there. I think they were reaching out to the lost uh, through outreach. I think that they had a lot of activity. I think they had a lot of energy. Uh, maybe it was that they were growing. Maybe a lot of people were coming to their church services. And by the way, all of those things are things that the church should be known for. Outreach and care and, and doing all of this. And I, I think that they were known for it. But in Thyatira, the thing about the church there is that the outward appearance was deceiving. It was deceiving. Because Jesus now transitions and he says, I've seen the good that you've done. I Maybe the, the good that you started with. But now Jesus, with his eyes as a fire, piercing gaze, who can see the truth of the matter, Jesus now begins to speak about what is beneath the service, uh, surface. And here's what we discover. We discover <laughs> that the church was a far cry from what it should have been. It was a great distance away from where they should have been. The church that appeared to be alive and the church that appeared to be dynamic was not alive and was not dynamic to the Lord. To the Lord, the church here is compromised. The church is, uh, is, is, is struggling, and that becomes the next topic of discussion as we move to verse number 20. Secondly, this morning, we see the problem revealed. So there's a good that's recognized, but now we see the problem revealed. And let's read together verse number 20. He says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. He says, listen, you've been doing a lot of good things, but I've still got something against you. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Man, right here we see God really began to make it personal at this point. Notice how he says, you have seduced uh, my people. And it, this is a personal thing to God. And so what we see is that on the outs- outside, everything seemed to be okay. But inwardly, there was a real problem. It was not what it seemed. We would maybe today say, man, this was a disappointing church. I remember the first time that I went to uh, Disneyland. <laughs> Maybe some of you have been to Disneyland before. And uh, I remember the first time I went, I was probably 23 years old. I was not married yet. I was getting married pretty soon. It was the summer before our wedding. And uh, I went with my pastor out to California to a Bible conference. And uh, some other people, he said, hey, let's go to Disneyland. So I thought, great. I've always wanted to go. 
you know, I'm 23 years old now uh, by this point. And I remember uh, going there and, and going to LA and uh, being in the area and the hotel we stayed at. First of all, there was some old band-aids on the bed when I got in there. So that was a little bit of a downer right away. Um, the pool was packed with so many, packed with so many people. I couldn't even get to it. We went to Disneyland for the day and it was so hot and there were so many people there and everything just seemed sort of worn out a little bit to me. That was just just that was my opinion. And I remember going there and thinking and being kind of pumped up about it. This is going to be a great experience. And then at the end of the day, just feeling sort of disappointed. Okay. It wasn't all that it cracked up to be. Now I've been back since then and they've made some upgrades and I've been back with family and with kids. So maybe that was the difference there. Uh, it seemed a lot better, but I remember that first time I went, I just left and I was just sort of disappointed. Maybe you've experienced something in your life where you've just been so excited about it. You thought this is the greatest thing. And then it just sort of kind of fell flat. It wasn't all that it seemed. Well, listen, that's really what the church here in Thyatira was like. On the outside, it seemed like everything was going great. They seemed alive. They were active. But then verse 20 reveals to us the disappointing reality of the situation there. And the reality is this. We see it here in the passage was that they had allowed a false teacher called Jezebel to teach and to seduce the servants of God, and she seduced them to listen to false teaching, to commit idolatry, and to commit fornication, which is sexual sin outside of marriage. So think about this for a moment. A church had a woman in a position of influence that was leading people to commit sexual immorality within the church. Now, this church to me immediately is the opposite of Ephesus, right? Ephesus, it says that they were very good at getting rid of false teachers, but they lacked love. This church, it seemed like they had a lot of love for people They were out there doing a lot of different things, but they were not good at keeping their house clean. They were not good at keeping the false teachers at bay or keeping them from having a position of authority within the church. Now, the question comes up, was this woman's name really Jezebel? Because as soon as you hear that name Jezebel, you immediately fly all the way back to 1 Kings and the story that is there. I don't know that her name necessarily was Jezebel, to be honest with you. It'd be like, in the, you know, us to say like, oh man, that guy's a Judas, you know? Well, what does that mean? Man, he, he betrayed me or whatever. I think it's more in that idea. And I think though Jesus used that word very specifically in order to call out and to help people to understand that this woman, though it may seem like she is uh, maybe very loving and very kind and maybe seems like she knows the scriptures. In fact, she is a deceiver. She is a corrupter. Now, I mentioned already back in 1 Kings where we're first introduced to Jezebel. I want to give you just a bit of an overview uh, of who Jezebel was in the Old Testament and why that has such a negative uh, connotation to it. Well, she was the pagan wife of King Ahab, who was a king uh, in Israel. And uh, in those days, of course, a lot of times people would intermarry between different groups in order to bring peace. But this was a mistake when he married Jezebel, because as soon as she uh, immigrated to Israel, she also immigrated her pagan beliefs. She immediately brought in uh, um, the worst type of heathenism that you can imagine. Immediately, the worship of God was uh, pushed aside and hidden. In fact, pushed down the, those that, uh, that were the prophets that were beginning to be killed as she brought up her own prophets and her own priests, some 850 of them uh, that she brought there into the city. Somebody said it this way, Jezebel's pagan priests came down on the land like a cloud of locusts, but the true believers were put to the sword. And Jezebel's spiritual heir and Jezebel's spiritual successor was this woman now that we find here in the church at Thyatira. Ultimately, ultimately, Jesus points out that she was the ultimate source of the trouble. Now, I don't want us to forget for a moment the fact that this is a real letter written to a real church. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? I was thinking about it this week. Can you imagine on that Sunday morning as they stood and, oh, hey, we have a letter today from John who's in on the Isle of Patmos. He's in exile because of his faith in Christ. What an honor it is to have this letter from John and then to read this letter. And it says, there's a Jezebel at Thyatira. And everybody goes, oh, man, I wonder who he's talking about. <laughs> Can you imagine that situation there? Especially when we see how God doesn't waste any time pointing out that she is the main source of the problem. The problem is her, and she is the one who is deceiving the people within the church. Now, a couple things about Jezebel within the church that we notice here. She claimed that she had the gift of prophecy, which is uh, for her is stepping outside of what God's, God's word reveals. So he says that she has the, she told him, I have the gift of prophecy. And she began to use her influence to teach positions that went against the word of God. As we saw last week, like Balaam, she was leading the people to worshiping idols and to sexual sin. And and, and how did she do that? This is what I, I want to sort of talk about. How does this happen? How does this happen that a woman can convince people within a church to be involved in immorality uh, right there? I don't know if she just tried to make it simple and say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. Uh, look at some of the sins of, of the past believers, and it's not that big of a deal for you to be involved in this. Maybe she had the mentality of the church in Rome where they said, hey, we're going to sin so that grace may abound, you know, and, and, and maybe she tried to take that uh, philosophical approach. Um, more than likely, though, what we understand is that she would have connected in the pagan rituals and the debauchery of those guilds that pretty much everyone was a part of and tried to integrate them into the church, or at least try to make it seem like it wasn't that big of a deal now that they're Christians, that they could still continue on in these sins that were being talked about. Remember, I, I said uh, they're divided up into these guilds and each one had a hall where activities and uh, things that would happen each week. Uh, most likely and typically there was a a meeting almost every single week, and they'd be centered on idolatry. Uh, and then as well, some sort of sexual debauchery was always a part of these uh, meetings that they would have. And of course, the people would participate in that. They would go, and even if they weren't necessarily participating in the act itself, they were there, they were observing it, they knew uh, what was going on there. And of course, we know that if you refuse to be a part of that guild, it would have brought about financial hardship for you and for your family. And so Jezebel, what we see here, it seems like just based off of what she brought into the church, she found a way to help people compromise in that area, bringing the society, bringing the sins of these guilds and of the city and bringing it into the church and trying to find a way to explain it to people in such a way so that they would accept it. Now, I think that we can all agree when you listen to this and think about it, we can all think that this is terrible. <laughs> this is so wrong what this Jezebel is doing. And, and we all have common ground in that. I think we can all say and agree, open sexual sin within the church is wrong, okay? Immorality and adultery and all of this uh, be, between uh, people is just, it's wrong that this should not be happening. Idolatry is wrong. We, we understand that. But I want to point out, that the main reason that Jesus corrected this church was not necessarily only because of Jezebel. It's not necessarily only because of her, but God is upset at the church because they allowed this to happen. And I think that's the core of the situation here in verse number 20. I want you to look at it again right at the very, uh, right at the very beginning there. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. All right. Here's what I want you to look there in verse number 20. He says, I have a few things against thee 
And look what I bolded there in the verse. Because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel. Here is the root issue of the church right here. They suffered. Okay, now that's what that word means. It means allowed. They allowed or they tolerated, could be another way of putting it. They allowed and they tolerated this false teacher to have influence within their church. Not only did they tolerate her, but they allowed her to promote and to uh, put uh, uh, this immorality and this wickedness and this idolatry. They allowed her to put it in front of the people. And so to this, Jesus says, I have a problem with you, church, because you allowed this to even happen. He, he, yes, he's pointing out Jezebel and he's saying she's wrong in this, but he's saying ultimately church family, this is your deal because you allowed this to happen. They allowed this open sinful practice to be allowed in this church. And again, we ask the question, how is it that this is even possible? <laughs> how is it that this would uh, an individual or, or a, a church get to the place where there's open rampant sin so obviously against God's word and against his law, breaking his instruction? It seems like nobody really gives a, a rip about it. Nobody's really paying attention to it. Now, the pattern here is very, very clear. And I want to remind all of us again, this is how sin works. I don't think that uh, this sin just manifests itself like right away in a major way. You guys know that. You understand that you don't just have an affair. You don't just murder somebody. It begins small. It begins with a lustful heart. It begins with anger uh, towards somebody. It begins in the mind and it moves into our, our thoughts and our heart and we begin to embrace it. And then it expresses itself in actions. Remember, that's why Jesus warned us about it in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He said, you've heard of it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, and this is where Jesus was so revolutionary. He said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery uh, with her already in his heart. So he's talking about here that, okay, you're, the, the thought process alone is what's going to lead to the action of sin. That's why we have to take care of our minds. That's why we have to cleanse our hearts and cleanse our minds because it's, it's sin in our thoughts. You know, if, if the Bible only taught only if you do bad things, you know, actions, that's sin. No, no, he talks about the heart. He talks about the mind because that's where it all begins for us. I mean, imagine a world where only our actions are pure, but our minds and our thoughts are so wrong. So wrong, but maybe that's for some of you, that might be your reality. I don't know, but just, you're just faking it. You're just pretending like everything's all right on the outside. That's a, that's impossible to live that way. That's why God addresses the heart. He addresses the mind that we need to keep it right. Think about Second uh, Corinthians 10, five, uh, where we're to bring those th thoughts under subjection. I don't have it on the screen, but I got it here uh, where he says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He talks about cast down those imaginations and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And the reason that uh, it's brought up so much in scripture and our minds and our thought processes are talked about because the end result is going to be those outward actions. And it's going to be a place. And I'll tell you this, if it's so deep in your mind and you're so locked in on your mind and you're so full of lust and full of anger and bitterness, when those actions take place, guess what happens? You justify it. And you're like, oh, well, I, this is totally okay. To me, that's the, really the, one of the only explanations about this church here. 
And, 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 and I, again, we would agree and we would all say, this is very, very wrong. I don't think there's any of you that would join the church at Thyatira knowing what we know now. <laughs> I don't think any of you would be like, hey, where's Jezebel? I heard she's got some good teaching going on here. I'm going to join up with that. No, I don't think so. None of us would say within the church, man, no way. We cannot accept this kind of sinful influence. We cannot have this immorality. Uh, we've got to confront it. We've got to make sure that people know this is sin. This is wrong before God. But I want to ask you, what about in your own life, though? See, it's easy for us to stand back and judge a church and say, how could you let your church get like that? And, or maybe even stand back and look at other people. How could you let your life get like that? But we don't ever examine our own hearts and our own minds. Wow. Yeah, I would never tolerate that within the church. But for many, you have no problem tolerating that lust and that anger and that bitterness and that sin in your mind, in your heart. You, you, I would never accept this from a pastor. I would never accept this from a leader in our church. I would never accept this, uh, you know, if, if somebody's in this open, rampant sin and nobody confronts them and talks about it, I would never accept it. But you constantly dwell on it yourself. Your nights are filled with lust and with anger and, and bitterness and, and you, just, you, you just let it go. You just let it go and it builds within you. This sexual immorality, this idolatry in this church did not start in a worship service. I want you to know. This is not the pastor saying, all right, guys, we're just going to do this today. No, not at all. It started in the minds and the hearts of them that allowed themselves to be influenced by this Jezebel. Maybe they went to their guild gathering that week after speaking to her, to her for the first time in a while. Maybe they had avoided that sin for a while, but she had convinced them that maybe it would be okay. And so they went to that meeting for the first time and they saw some things that they had tried to remove from their mind for a long time, but they thought, well, if she says that this is okay, then it must be okay. They allowed that root to go Later on, maybe they emotionally gave themselves to it. They mentally began to involve themselves in those sinful practices. But guess what? They showed up for worship on Sunday. <laughs> they showed up and said, hey, Jezebel, thanks for the tip. I went and it went okay. But over time, they fell further and further away to it. Her teaching began to make sense to them. Why not allow this in the church? After all, it's not hurting anybody. We're trying to reach out to people. And this is what everyone else is around us doing in church Listen, I'm here to warn you today as your pastor that we need to be aware of those sinful thought processes that eventually will lead us to actions. It allows the focus of this world to take root in our heart, begin to influence our thinking. And if that's where you're at right now, where you're maybe trying to, in your mind, juggle between, okay, this is what scripture says and this is what the world says. This is what Jesus has taught me and this is what uh, philosophy has showed me and what I've learned in my university classes and this is what my coworkers say. And I'm trying to make all of these things work together. I got to tell you, it doesn't work together. You can't just uh, connect those two. You know, James diagnosed the progression of sin in James chapter one and verse number 14, uh, where he said, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the process here. This is what I believe was happening in Thyatira. Satan sowed those seeds of sin uh, through Jezebel. They took root in those people's hearts that grew into something then, and it developed and it grew and it grew until today we look at it. We say, this is unimaginable to see happening in a church, but yet it started out small and it grew to that place. Ultimately, it brought the church to a place of judgment. And we see that in verse number 22. Jesus said, behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts and will give unto every one of you according to your works. I want you to take notice of the, of the uh, judgment here for Jezebel. 
Notice it says, he said, I'll put you on a bed. What that means is a sick bed. In its, in its original, that's what it means, a sick bed. And, and, and obviously he's going to bring sickness to her. She brought sickness to the church. God is going to bring a sickness to her in judgment. And now she's going to suffer. Those that followed along with her, it says that tribulation, difficulty, trials are going to come to them. It says her children. Now, we don't know if this is maybe literal or spiritual in the sense of people that followed along with her teachings, but those would be killed, it says. Now, this is some strong judgment here from the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? This is some strong judgment. And and it's come to the church because the church did not fulfill their responsibility to get rid of false teachers, to stay separated, to stay connected and sanctified to God and to him alone. They allowed all of this to come into the church and now the judgment is come. And judgment then became necessary. And I want you to see there in the verse there in number uh, 23, God is gonna use the judgment to prove to the other churches that he can actually see what's going on. You see that there? He says there at the end, he says, uh, and I will kill a children with death and all the churches shall know. Notice that the other churches will know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. I mean, I'm the one in control. I'm the one who sees and will give unto every one of you according to your works. He says, I see what's going on here. And I want this to be a warning. The judgment that is coming is a warning to the other churches that God alone knows what is going on. And those that work against Christ, you will be found out. You will be found out. You say, oh man, that's kind of mean of you to say, Pastor Paul. I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. You will be found out. God sees what is going on and he will not allow his church to be tarnished in that way. That was the problem there in the church. But I want you to notice that God doesn't just step in and blow things up, just so you know. I want you to look at point number three today where we see the solution that is required. So there's a, there's, a, there's a good that's recognized. There's a problem that's revealed, but now we see God give a solution in verse number 21. So we're gonna go back to verse 21 and 22 again. Look what Jesus says. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. That word space there means I gave her time. You ever have somebody say that to me or say that to you? I just need some space. <laughs> Usually it's not a good thing, right? Usually it means you're about to get broken up with, right? I need some space in our relationship. I need some space. What does that mean? Time. I need time away. And what did God say here? He says, I gave her space to repent and she repented not. And then he says again, I'll cast her the bed and then that commit adultery into great tribulation. Here's what I want you to notice. There was time for them to repent. There was time. God gave them time to repent. Imagine Christ still loved and reached out to Jezebel, this false teacher, her followers, despite all of the corruption that they had brought to the church here, Jesus still gives them a chance to repent. And he said there that the judgment would only happen if they failed to repent. You see that? Only if they failed to repent, then the judgment would come. And this is what it means for us. And this is a really wonderful thing that I want you to see. Listen, As long as you are living, as long as you have breath, there is still an opportunity for you to repent. There's still an opportunity for you to make things uh, right and get right with God. No matter what it is that you've done, no matter uh, how terrible it is, God always calls us still to repentance. And if we repent, he will save us, he will forgive us, and he will deliver us from the judgment to come. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 through 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I love that. Return to God, you'll receive mercy. 
Uh, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter, when he was preaching to those on Solomon's porch, he said, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Another verse that I think just so fits this so perfectly is in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. They suffered her for a long time. God suffers up. He gives us time. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here's the truth, church family. God cares deeply about the church. He cares deeply about the church, but I want you to know that he cares about the individual even more. He cares about his church, but he cares about you as an individual. He cares about your relationship with him. And what is so great is that he always gives us a way. He provides a way. He gives us space. He gives us time for repentance. Now, the problem that comes out of that is that often we live in sin and nothing happens. And so we think, well, I guess I'm okay to continue to do this. And we, we misinterpret the space to repent as God's con- condoning what we're doing. And that's not true at all. God gives us space to repent. And so that's why we must be aware of when sin comes into our life. We must be aware of our thought processes and the things that we are in so that we can repent because God always gives us a time to repent and an opportunity to repent. And I got to tell you, church, for some, that might be today for you. Today might be your opportunity to repent. Just as if they got that letter out and they read that letter to the church And Jezebel knew who it was talking about, (laughs) knew who it was that they were talking about. She had an opportunity then to repent. She resisted it and judgment came upon her. But for you today, today might be your opportunity to repent. And he gave them that chance. The solution here for the church was that they would repent. But not only did God say, I want you to repent and make things right, but he encouraged the few that were doing right to stand strong. Look at verse number 24. He says, but unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. This is really interesting. So the warning goes out to Jezebel and the warning is given there to the church. But then Jesus gives this thought of encouragement to those of you who have not known or have not followed her. And then he says here, did you see it? He says, those that have not known the depths of Satan. Now that's a really interesting phrase there. I think what it means and what Jesus is saying is that there were some people that literally did not know what was going on in the church. They literally did not know like maybe how far it had gone. They didn't know how deep uh, and desperate the situation was. And to them, as they were maybe sitting there in church that day or, or wherever gathered together and they heard that letter read and they thought, what, what is happening in our church? God says, I'm not going to add any more burden to you than that knowledge alone. How shocking would it be for you to be in a church to find out that something like that happened? Maybe some of you have experienced that in your church in the past or in in a situation where uh, maybe a family member or somebody you thought was a certain way and it was revealed the truth of who they really were and you were just shocked by it. Imagine that burden that was placed upon the church as they found out what had maybe really been happening there. And so Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to add any more burden to you. And then just to add on there so they don't get overconfident, he also tells them to hold fast until I come. Now, the Greek word there is kratio, which means to uh, hold uh, fast, which means to, um, sorry, where it says hold fast, it means to like hold onto with, with all of your strength in essence, to really lock onto it. What that means is that it would not be easy what they are about to go through. Uh, the challenges were not going to be simple. 
but it would have been a comfort to those believers that even surrounded in sinfulness, they could hold on to the truth. Even when people appeared and were not who they thought they were, they could hold fast to the truth. By the way, if you've ever been hurt by somebody, if you've had somebody in your life uh, fall into great sin and it disturbed you in such a great way and it caused you to fall away from God, I want to remind you of this verse. God says, hold fast. Yes, it's a burden to know that Christians fall into sin. Yes, it's a burden to know that maybe within a church, there's people who are not even born again and they're involved in these these sins. But listen, you can still hold fast to the faith. You can still continue on. You can still uh, stand strong uh, for the day. Notice how he says here, hold fast um, till I come. God says it's possible to live in that way until he returns. And then God gives some rewards and reminders here in the last few verses in verse 26. He says, he that overcometh that and keepeth my works until the end to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I have received of my father and I will give him the morning star. This is super cool here. He reminds them that, listen, those of you who are overcomers, what's an overcomer? An overcomer is somebody who's a true Christian. You're truly born again. And he says, to those of you that are true believers in Jesus Christ, uh, you, you will show your faith by obedience in Christ all of your days. Notice how he says there, keep my works till the end. You're, you're going to be faithful. If you're faithful in that, we see a couple of promises that are given. First of all, we have power over the nations. What is that talking about? That's a reference to the coming millennial kingdom. That speaks of authority that God is going to give to us. There's other passages. Jesus talks about this, uh, where we'll have authority um, over the nations during that thousand year reign following the tribulation. God promises that we'll rule, that we'll reign with him if we've been faithful. You remember the passage, if you're faithful in the little things, I will make you uh, over much. That, yes, that, that applies here in the earth, of course, um, but in the ruling to come, um, we're going to see that. As well, uh, the other promise is that we'll receive the morning star. You say, well, what's, what's the morning star? Well, that's representative of Jesus himself. Later on in Revelation, he refers to himself as the morning star. You say, well, if I'm saved, I've already got him. Yes, you've got him. Uh, but it's basically a reminder to us that we have the fullness of Christ through salvation. We have all of Jesus. We have everything uh, that we need to live uh, this life. And that's a real blessing to us. Be reminded of that. Be encouraged of it, that we have Christ. And he is yours and he is mine and we can live and, and act for him because of that. And then verse number 29, he says, and every single one of these, he that hath an ear, <laughs> do you have ears today? Yeah, I got ears. Uh, even if you don't have ears, you can read it on the screen today. So you can see this. Let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. These words here give us a charge to listen and to heed to this letter to the church at Thyatira. And I want to just quickly, very quickly and briefly refresh those thoughts that we can pull from the passage today. Some of you might be reeling over this and just like, man, I can't believe a church got to this point. Here's Here's what stands out to me. First of all, it reveals to us the seriousness of practicing and tolerating sin. It reminds us that God will judge continued unrepentant sin within the church. I want you to remember that God gives us space and opportunity to repent. He does. But if it continues on and it's unrepentant and you just feel like this is what I'm going to do. This is what I think is right. I can still be a Christian. I can do these things, even though the scripture is clear. It's amazing to me how we can take the word of God and be like, ah, it doesn't actually mean that. (laughs) Oh, no, it doesn't actually apply to me. No, it applies. And unrepentant, continuing uh, sin that goes on, God will judge He will judge. He will bring chastisement to his children. I think probably every one of you could raise your hand and say, you know, pastor, I've experienced 
the chastising hand of God. And God did it in my life and he brought a difficulty to wake me up and to bring me back to that position of repentance and connection with him. We can say that today because he loves us so much. It's all about his love here. But it's serious. It's very serious that we do not practice and we do not tolerate sin. Sometimes we say, well, I can't control anybody else. That is true. But you can control how much they influence you. This, this Jezebel, she was unrepentant. I mean, there's probably nothing that could be done for her. She was completely unrepentant, even though she was confronted publicly about this. But you know what? The people in the church there, they could have, they could have confronted her earlier. They could have said, hey, th- we are not going to allow this to happen within our church family. But they tolerated it. They allowed it. Secondly, from this passage, we recognize that a pattern of obedience marks those that are true believers. Two times here in those last few verses, he talked about continuing till the end, continuing till I come. That's the idea of a pattern of faithful obedience to Christ is, is what proves and what shows uh, those that are true believers. You say, can you be saved and not do a good thing the rest of your life? Yes, I believe in that as well, certainly. But I do also believe in spiritual, uh, uh, the Christian principles of spiritual fruit that can remain, that continues on. And then finally, we see that God's promise to his own is that even though there's struggles in spite of sin, listen, we're never gonna have a perfect church. But in spite of sin, in spite of errors that came into this church and into these people, it is still possible to experience the fullness of Christ as we look forward to reigning with him in his kingdom one day. See, these churches here, like Thyatira, who fail to listen to the divine uh, 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 call of God, will receive divine judgment. And those that listen to the message will receive divine blessing and forgiveness and mercy. But the choice is ours today. What are you going to do with your sin? What are you going to do with that uh, sin that you've allowed to creep back into your life and it has a stronghold in you? I know, listen, being, being disconnected from one another, a lot of being alone, a lot of loneliness has, has been a breeding ground, maybe for some, of hearts of anger and of bitterness and of uh, lust and of, I mean, also, you name it, right? And I recognize that there's been maybe a resurgence in your own heart where you don't have people checking on you maybe as much. You're not getting the connection that you need and you've fallen away a bit. Can I encourage you today to repent? Get that right with God. Don't allow it to fester. Don't allow it to remain with you that you bring it with you when we do begin to meet back together again. Let's come back together pure and whole and focus on Christ. But I want you to know that if that is you, you do have an opportunity to repent today. And you can just cry out to God and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. I claim forgiveness through what you did for me on the cross. I know that you paid for this sin. I know that you've already paid the debt. I know that uh, there's nothing that I can do that can, can forgive this or that can make it right with you. And God, I claim your forgiveness. I claim uh, that, that, that satisfaction of my sin debt from the cross. And you can say, God, I, repentance, by the way, is a change of mind. It's not just saying I'm sorry for it. It's saying I'm sorry and I'm not going to let it affect me any longer. I'm going to do my very best to stay away from it. I'm going to remove it from my life. I want to encourage you today to evaluate what you're tolerating. Evaluate what you're allowing into your life. What mindset, what, what immoral thoughts, which, which sin are you allowing into your life? And let's repent of it and get rid of it today. And trust and know that God is willing to forgive. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook 
or follow us on Instagram at VanCityBaptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.